This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's been fun and, and hard at the same time walking through this series that we've been walking through as we have talked through this idea of what it means to be uh, kingdom citizens. What does it mean to live in this kingdom that Jesus has called us to? This kingdom that God has carved out uh, for himself. What does it mean for us to be a part of that? And so many times it's uh, Jesus in preaching this famous Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached. And Jesus is really giving us this look into, if you want to be in my kingdom, Here's what the kingdom looks like. If you want to know how to respond to certain things, here's how someone in my kingdom responds. If you want to know what it means to show real love, here's what love looks like in my kingdom. If you want to know what grace looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what reconciliation looks like, here's what it looks like in my kingdom. So every time we started these sermons, as we walk through this this sermon, we've really kind of had to start with a, a question. Every one of these, you really could start with a question. The one we're going to read today really begs this question. How should we respond towards personal insult or personal injustice? We're not talking about corporate stuff. We're talking personal injustice, a personal insult. I feel personally offended. I feel personally attacked. I feel personally targeted. And what we're going to see is the scriptures teach us that our response as members of the kingdom of Christ, it should be very different from what conventional wisdom would say. The way that you're prone to respond to legitimate personal insult, there's a specific thing that Jesus calls, uh, calls us to hear. This is why in Matthew 5.20 said that if our righteousness doesn't surpass the righteousness of the teachers of the law, we won't enter into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus has been calling us into this place that says it's not enough for your behavior to match your favorite religious leaders. Your heart needs to match that of God's. What does it mean for our heart to match the heart of God? So up to this point, Christ has given us and given the Pharisees roughly about six misinterpretations of the Old Testament by Israel's teacher. So you think, The Israel's teachers have known the Bible through and through. They've known the Old Testament through and through. They've uh, uh, endeavored to live according to what is written there. And so Jesus has been challenging them, saying, your idea of murder is this, but this is what God's heart says. Your idea of adultery is this, but this is what God's heart says. Your idea of divorce is this, but this is what God's word says. Your idea of telling the truth and oath-keeping and oath-making is this, but here's what God's heart says. And we get to this point, this fifth one, we'll talk about the sixth one next week, this fifth one, where he considers another misinterpretation of the law, this idea that's known as the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle. It's one that's not new. It's one that has been around long before even these scriptures were recorded. But Jesus really turns what we think makes sense, and it does. It makes good, logical, conventional sense to think in this way. Many of our organized and westernized laws and even eastern laws around the world are rallied or built around this principle. So let's read together. Matthew 5. We're going to look at verses 38 through 42. I really want us to think through 
Where am I here? How am I prone to react and respond to insult, personal insult, personal injustice? Where does my heart want to take me? Let's just be honest. Where do I want to go? And where does God call us into, right? We just saying, Waymaker, Lord, make a way for my heart to operate the way your heart does, because my way is not your way here. So let's read it together. Matthew 5, starting at verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anybody slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What? <laughs> Let's just be real. You read this. I mean, we've been in church. Many of us have been in church a while. When you see this, this is just one of those real quick skip overs. I don't know what he's talking about there, but let me go on to the grace and love part. Or let me go to the justice part. This whole whoop, smack who? This has always been a very difficult passage to the point where it's been often abused and misused and misunderstood. But let's just start with what the principle is. The principle of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's a principle that, again, didn't begin in the Old Testament, but it was a huge bedrock of Old Testament civil law. It ultimately taught that the punishment must fit the crime. Very simple. You do this crime. This is the equal punishment that is commensurate with the crime that you committed. So if you do this, it's very clear, here's the equal punishment that should come. This is the principle of, of so many ancient laws, including one of the most famous and one of the oldest codified laws we have, the Code of Hammurabi. And you see the same principle laid out. This isn't, so for us to think that this is, this just begins here, it doesn't. This has been conventional wisdom across the board. hundred years roughly before the Mosaic Law. And it's the basis of our legal system today. In Latin, it's called lex talionis. It's the same idea found in the expressions that we might hear tit for tat or quid pro quo. Same thing. Same principle, same bedrock. And it was especially good. You see, you might think, man, this just seems really harsh, but it's not. This was a way to restrict our heart's natural inclination to go overboard and enact disproportionate justice. That's what we're prone to do. Very rarely are we going, let me find the equal way to get them back. Normally, it's like, I want them to feel it more than I felt it. Because that'll teach them not to try that again. So that's our, that's our, that's our heart's bent. And it's always been uh, humankind's heart bent. Disproportionate justice. So this actually was something that was put in place by tons of civilizations to help restrict that natural inclination to go overboard, to bring disproportionate justice, that selfish hunger inside of us that wants a face or a body for an eye. This is, we see this in the scriptures, the story of, uh, one, of, one, of uh, one of Jacob's daughters, Dinah, had been assaulted and, and, and raped by a Hivite. And when the brothers heard about it, they heard what happened and they wanted to enact justice. What did they do? They went and killed all the men that were in the village. They went and killed everybody that was there as a way of revenge, going above and beyond what the horrific act was that uh, brought this about to begin with. 
So this idea of tit for tat was really to help restrict. It was something that was meant to bring more justice and not less. But here's what was happening. What was happening is the Jewish leaders, remember, this was meant all every time people had a sense of injustice. It wasn't that you're supposed to just let injustice happen. Tons of Old Testament passages were such that if there is some type of an offense that happens, bring that offense out, bring it to the legislative body that's there, bring it to the judiciary, if you will, bring it to the court, and then the court will then be able to levy what the necessary punishments would be. It was never meant for you to take your own vengeance on your own. It was never meant for the Jews at the time to go, well, eye for an eye. You did that, give me your eye. It was, why, and why is that? Because we are always going to be very subjective with what we think the facts are. I'm going to think that what you did is one thing. It may be, it may not. But if I get to be the judge and jury and go, you did that to me, give me this, and there's no uh, body to whom we can appeal, then I can just make up justice as I go. So this was a very, very important principle, and it was something that was supposed to be a good thing, right? This eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth was something that was supposed to be not adjudicated at our level, at our sinful heart level, but adjudicated at this higher body that could objectively look at what occurred and go, we now can see these are the facts. These are the things that occurred. And now as a result, this is the punishment that should ensue. That's how it was supposed to be. But what was happening is, and, and many times what you saw many of the Pharisees doing is they were starting to apply this, uh, this, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle on a personal level and feeling justified in doing so. Bypassing, right, this idea of having this objective body to be able to observe the things and, and be able to come up with what the right thing should be. They were going, listen, it says in the Bible, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So I now have decided that this is what should happen. And they would feel justified in doing so. So here you see that Jesus is turning a little bit of that on its head. He's basically saying this is not how citizens in God's kingdom are supposed to function. Our little subjective interpretation of what we're seeing. You ever been in a situation, I'm sure many of us, if not all of us have, where you just really feel like something happened. You really feel like somebody did a thing that was a slight to you. You really believe that what they said or the way they said it must have meant X, Y, and Z. And so now, based on what we think and what we feel, we start coming up with what we think the remedy should be. That's just how we all are. Now, hopefully, we'll have some wise counsel to walk to somebody, people that we trust, and go, hey, this and this happened, and I'm starting to feel like this might be caused by this, or I feel like they might be doing this, or I feel like that I need to do this. And hopefully, if we have wise counsel, they'll sit and go, well, based on what you're saying, you might be jumping the gun a bit, or you might be thinking of that one way, but what if it was this? And what if it was this? Now, at that point, that's when we have to step back and go, yeah, there may be some other ways to look at this. If I only trust myself, my gut feeling, or my experiences exclusively, then I'm going to be prone to bringing about some form of disproportionate justice. But if my pride is so high, it doesn't matter if the majority of people are saying one thing, the people that I trust are saying, no, that's probably not it, and I'm just not going to hear it, then there may be something wrong on a heart level. It's part of the reasons why the church is supposed to function in a way in which it's not enough for me to feel like you slighted me or I slighted you. Therefore, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. What am I supposed to do? If I really, if there really is sin or there's some kind of slight, I'm supposed to go to what the scripture calls kind of our leaders, our governing body, this group of people in theory who are impartial, our elders. So we go to the elders, the leaders in our church and go, I feel like this happened here. I feel slighted. I feel offended. 
then it's the elder's job to go, let's look objectively at the facts and see if they match, if they are in accordance with what it is you're feeling. Because if it is, then there's a remedy that we need to bring. But if not, then we need to change the way we're viewing this. This is the way it's supposed to work. But that's not what was happening with these Jewish leaders. And so Jesus is ultimately getting to this next level and saying, when you get to a place, when you feel like you have been offended or you've suffered personal injury, your knee-jerk reaction is going to go to the tit-for-tat principle. You're going to want to go get uh, exact your hunk of flesh. You're going to want to do that. And Jesus is saying this very difficult truth for us. If you're operating in my kingdom, then when it comes to personal insult and even injury, here's the hard part. We must give up our rights. What? I mean, we're not talking about we're not talking about times when you thought you were offended by somebody, but you really weren't. We're not talking about times when you just uh, you thought one thing and it clearly was not that, but you were so incensed that you couldn't help it and you wanted to act and somebody had to talk you off the ledge. We're not talking about that. This is legitimate, legitimate injury, legitimate insult. And you know that you have what it takes to respond in kind. I've said this before. I can't tell you how many times I've had arguments. I can remember arguments 20 years ago. And I still remember the return salvo. I wish I said. I wish that weren't true, but it is. Because our hearts, I know I'm not the only one. Our hearts are, are, are wired in such a way where it's like, I want to get my revenge. I want to get this. And maybe I don't act on it, but I still feel it. I'm still thinking it because my heart gets bent in that way. And Jesus is saying, he's saying that if you're going to operate in my kingdom and you are truly one of mine and you are changed by my spirit, then something begins to change in you that when that first knee-jerk reaction hits, my spirit takes precedence. My heart takes precedence. And so precedent. So when you get to that place where you're like, no, 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 you did this. I'm getting ready to get you back or I'm getting ready to humble you real quick. That's when God's spirit takes over and says, give up your right in this case. And this is hear me. This is not saying give up our rights in some large sense of the word. Some people have taken this extreme one way or the other. This is in my personal working with this person. This is not about civil justice here. It's not about, hey, don't get into a place where you might have to use the court system in order to get certain justice. That's not what this is. This is about you personally taking justice in order to remedy an injury or an insult. This is not a this is not an easy truth. This may have been a little bit easier in a Near Eastern or ancient Middle Eastern world where, honestly, if you did not have the power to do much, you just had to take it. You might be angry, might be frustrated, but you just had to take it. But in an incredibly ruggedly individualized society like the one in which we live, this is a much harder truth. Because there are seemingly infinite, an infinite number of ways to get revenge on people, especially with social media. You can completely ruin somebody's life via social media if you wanted to. You've got people who have created revenge websites where you just put the person's email or phone number or personal information and they will completely slander and destroy the reputation of a person. We have far more ways, far more resources to act out disproportionate justice more than ever before. 
So, so this is the question. What do you do? What do you do when you've actually been insulted or injured personally? Where does your heart want to go when you've been insulted? You feel you've been insulted or injured personally. Because according to Jesus, we need to be ready to give up our rights. We need to be ready to give up our rights. Now, let's say this. I believe that uh, Jesus is saying this on the heels of just a few verses before in verse 10. What did he say? Blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness sake. They will inherit the kingdom of God. A lot of a lot of this seems to be against the backdrop of what these Christians are getting ready to deal with once Jesus is gone. You see, Jesus knows what's coming and he knows that they're going to be left without the Savior. He knows the Holy Spirit is going to come to dwell in them. They don't know that yet, but he absolutely knows that he's going to be gone soon. And he's giving them all of these, uh, 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 these, these principles about what it means to live in his kingdom because he's going to be gone. They don't even know what's getting ready to come. They don't know the persecution that's going to come. They don't know how many of them are going to be thrown into prisons, how many of them are going to be killed, ripped from their families. They don't yet know that. So Jesus is giving them all of these principles to hold to because when this persecution comes, that you realize it is so easy. It's so easy to follow God when everything is going well. It's so easy to praise God when everything is going well. But when things aren't working out, do we still hold to those kingdom principles? That's how you know when idolatry is at, at, at the root of your heart. Because when you get shaken, when uncertainty comes, when you feel alone, when you feel hurt, when you feel attacked, when you feel betrayed, you start to violate these aspects of God's kingdom. Because you start feeling like the only way for me to remedy my current situation is to step outside of kingdom principles and bring about my own. So Jesus is bringing us into a place that is extremely difficult. And we know it had to be even more difficult in some ways for them in this first century church because we know what they ended up facing. But here's the thing. Their response, their potential response at this point is no different than ours. It was no different from the ways in which we would uh, respond and, and function. But again, to think about what this eye for an eye meant, the Pharisees, they should have known or they knew before it was never to be implemented by individuals, always meant to go before the court. So they were applying it to their personal relationships. Jesus is saying this is not how this should function. This idea that we should not be seeking an eye for an eye personally. Instead, we should be sacrificing our rights. Now, real quick. This is another passage that's been abused in ways where people have used it to support either extreme pacifism, extreme anarchy. Uh, uh, people have used this alone to prove like violence, including war, is always unjustifiable. And this isn't at all what Jesus is going to. I mean, we know he talked to actual Roman soldiers and talked about their hearts and did not address this. We need to be careful not to extend right the scope of what these passages mean because we start making doctrines that ought not be. This has also uh, led to some, uh, you know, avoiding either joining law enforcement, military, government, or even practicing self-defense. There are those who think that this is telling them not to do that. That is not what this passage is saying. So let's look at this first verse. This first verse, 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This, this uh, passage where he, where he begins to lead, and verse 9, I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, Turn to the other also. Think about this idea. Verse 39 is basically saying, okay, Jesus is showing us real quick four different ways that we're supposed to give up our rights. This is the first one. The first one is give up your right for personal revenge. 
give up your right for personal revenge. Now, it's hard because, again, in this culture, in many ways, people are, are given praise for their clapbacks. They're given praise for all the ways that they respond to being offended. In many ways, your, your pride is on the line. Your reputation is on the line. If you just let that thing slide, you're going to be looked at as weak. And so that pressure to respond, or I don't want that person to think they got over on me in that way. And Jesus is saying, the first way that you give up your rights is give up your right for personal revenge. Now, when he says don't resist an evildoer, be careful. This is not saying we're not supposed to deal with evildoers. This is not saying that we're not supposed to address or even call out evildoers. This doesn't mean that we should never resist an evil person. How do we know this? Because a little bit later in, the, in, the, in, in Matthew, we're going to see in another gospel, you're going to see Jesus resisting evildoers in the temple. You're going to see Jesus walking into the temple, flipping over tables, uh, fashioning a whip, knocking out the evil people, not knocking them out, but knocking their tables out, all of these evil folks that are doing evil, unjust things. We've preached about that before, all of the economic injustices that were happening there. And so he shows and drives out these evildoers. He's not saying that we aren't supposed to call out and deal with evil. Remember, that's what we call the temple tantrum. I had to make the dad joke. That's what it was. That's for you, Larry. And then we see Jesus in Matthew 18. What did he say? If someone is in sin, what do we do? If someone is in sin and they sin against you, confront them, right? Tell them what it is that they've done to, that you've done to offend them or that they've done to offend you. If they don't hear you, get two or three others. And if they still don't hear you, then you bring it to the church. What are we doing? Addressing evil or alleged evil or sin, evildoers in the midst. Christ was not saying that we're not supposed to confront evil. Christ is saying he's forbidding personal retaliation in those, in those situations. He's not forbidding civil justice. Listen, Jesus cares about how we respond when evil is committed against us personally. He cares. You might feel justified to just react however you want because you know it's a legitimate grief, a grief grievance. It's a legitimate reason why you're angry. You, you know that your anger isn't unfounded. You know that you're not just making something up in the moment and then reacting in that sense. You, you know you're not doing that. You know you have a real reason to be upset. Sometimes the validity of our argument or the validity of our, of our complaint gives us a green light to respond however we want to. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't get to just respond however you want to just because you have a legitimate or valid claim. So does this mean then, this is when it gets tough, if Jesus is forbidding personal retaliation and instead telling us, give up our right to retaliate and learn to respond gently, does this mean that we don't defend ourselves from physical attack? That's a big one. Does that mean that I don't defend myself from, is that what Jesus is getting at here? I don't think Jesus is getting at that at all. That's not really what he's dealing with here. So here's what we need to do. We need to dig into this idiom that's used, this phrase that's used, this idea of slapping you on the cheek. Because if we don't understand that, then we're getting ready to run into a lot of problems, and many people have. What does it mean when Jesus uses these words and when he says this very provocative truth, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also? Some people have looked at this and said, and this is why I can't be a Christian, because Jesus wants y'all to be doormats. 
And that is not at all what Jesus is getting at here. We say this all the time. That's why it's so important that we actually study both of the context and the history uh, into which these scriptures were written or out of which these scriptures were written. Otherwise, we start making up stuff. So what does this mean? When Christ is referring to being slapped on the right cheek, he's really not even referring to being physically attacked. He's really not directly talking about people being physically attacked. Here's why. In that culture, if you were slapped on the right cheek, one would have to use the back of one's right hand because most people were right-handed. Think about your, put your hand on your cheek. Think about how somebody has to get to your cheek. If I'm standing in front of you and I'm right-handed, how could I possibly get to your cheek? I'm not going to go like this. I got to backhand you. Oh, people will be like, Pastor Daryl Ford was talking about backhanding people. Please don't put that online. I can't deal with that today. But the only way that someone could smack you on your right cheek in a culture where the majority of people are right-handed is to backhand you. That carried a level of significance and insult in that culture. Jesus is talking about more than physical stuff here. He's talking about things that culturally we know to be an insult, a way to punk you, a way to uh, take away your dignity and take away your pride so that you feel less than. That's what Jesus is getting to. He's not referring to just physical attack. This was culturally considered a deep insult. And further, if you look at some of the old rabbinical laws, being slapped with the back of the hand was twice more offensive than being slapped with an open hand. It was considered more offensive to be backhanded by somebody because it showed you're not even worth my open palm. You're not even worth the side of my hand that I use that I use to do all of my important things with. You're so, you're, you're so insignificant that I use the part of my hand that I really don't use for anything. And I'll smack you with that. Y'all, culturally, this is what this meant. So we know this can't just be this physical thing. In context, it, it referred to, uh, and, and some scholars say that it could also refer to someone being a heretic. If people thought that your theology was so wild, wildly off and harmful, they would smack or smack with the back of their hand as well to show, this is what I think of you and your theology. And keep in mind, as we said before, there's a high likelihood that Jesus is saying this in reference to or against the backdrop of what? Being persecuted for the faith. A Christian, and we know later, we're going to look at this passage in a little bit, a Christian could indeed uh, find themselves, this new follower of Jesus in the first century church could find themselves being abused and persecuted because of their faith. They could easily find themselves, and they would find themselves being on the run, shamed by community, shamed by their family, shamed by their friends, shamed even by a rabbi at the same time. And so Jesus here is saying, for us today, whatever we know to be, right, in our kind of collective wisdom and the ways that we function today in 2022, what is insulting to us today? And when whatever that is happens, how are we prone to respond? How are we prone to respond? And Jesus says, respond in gentleness and give up your right for retaliation. This is why 1 Peter 2 says, for what credit is there if when you do wrong and you're beaten, you endure it. But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, that brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He didn't commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he didn't insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, 
but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So I ask again, how do you respond when others slap you or insult you? How are we prone to react when someone legitimately insults us? What Jesus is showing us is there's some sort of supernatural character that should mark us as kingdoms of his citizen or as citizens of his kingdom. There's something that should mark us there. There's something that should be different. There's something that should change in us. Where some, in these personal situations, as hard as it is, we suffer the personal insults in order to love God and others more than ourselves. I will be the first to say, God's still working on me. But there's gotta be something that makes us go, if we get to a place where we try to return the insult, some type of conviction needs to hit and go, I shouldn't have done that. And it's not even a sense of because I was wrong about what I thought happened. It may, you may legitimately be right about what you think happened. You may legitimately be right about the fact that someone sinned against you. But how we respond matters. How we respond says a lot about the God that we serve. How we respond says a lot about the one that we claim saved us and redeemed us. And it's really hard. Look at this next verse, verse 40, telling us the second way that we can give up our rights. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Jesus here is saying that not only do you need to be able to give up your right for revenge, you need to be willing to give up your right to your own possessions. Give up your right to your own possessions. What in the world does this mean? The second right that Jesus says that we need to be willing to relinquish at times, this, this idea of giving up or being willing to part with our possessions, when Christ referred to being sued over a shirt, he was referring to what they would have known or what we know as a tunic. And many folks would have tunics. It was more likely kind of like an ancient wear, an ancient suit. And a person would normally own multiple tunics. The cost, however, was very expensive. And people usually only owned one. So you might have multiple, some old ones, newer ones, but you were really lucky to have one or two. Wealthier people might have many. You were lucky to have one or two. And so if you had one or two shirts or one or two tunics, it was such a big deal. Why? These weren't just for fashion and to show off your sartorial decision making. This was beyond that. This was something to say, my clothing, I don't just wear to look good in front of you. I wear to keep me warm at night. These shirts doubled as blankets in a cold environment you had hopefully one or two tunics that could keep you warm. This would keep you warm at night and in the winter. So would somebody ever sue anybody else for clothes? How bad do you have to be? Where do you have to be to go, you did this to me, I want to make sure you freeze to death at night. You see how that level of anger and frustration and desire for revenge materializes. You did this to me, but I want to make sure that some of your, your most basic needs can no longer be met. I want your blanket. I want your tunic. I want your shirt. You see, one of the things that's, that's also interesting in court, people could be sued for the very clothes on their back, especially if they didn't have the money to pay what was owed. So if they're like, you don't have the money, that shirt looks nice. You could sue and walk away with the shirt. You can sue and walk away with the tunic, sue and work, walk away with uh, their, their clothing. But according to Mosaic law, people couldn't be sued for their coats. You could be sued for the shirts and the tunics. You couldn't sue somebody for their coat. That was considered what we would call 
an inalienable right. The right to your coat is yours. There's nothing a court can do to force you to give up your coat. But your tunic, your shirt, this kind of lighter blanket, people can take it. So when you think, when you think about this, matter of fact, Exodus 22 puts it this way. If you, if you do take the garment of your neighbor in a pledge, you must return it to him by the time the sun goes down, for it is his only covering. It is his garment for his body. What else can he sleep in? And when he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. This was always understood. You can sue for a lot of things. And even if you have to take it from them for a time, you cannot take someone's coat away from them for the evening. This is so important. This doesn't mean much for us now because we don't operate this way. But if you want to know what Jesus was getting at, you have to understand this. Jesus is truly saying, you have a right to your coat. Nobody can take that from you. But if you find yourself in a situation where they're trying to take your shirt, give up the the inalienable right as well. Give up your coat. Give up your coat. The possession that you know you have a right to and no one else does. And there's nothing that could ever happen for them to take it from you. Be willing to give that up. This is a deeper principle, this idea that how married am I to my possessions? How willing am I in order to love gently and to, and to, to manifest God's heart in my life? How willing am I to part with the things I know I have a right to? You saw the early Christians deal with this. So I was going to get to the reason why I really believe that this is talking about talking within a persecution com, uh, context is because if you look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, describing what happened in the, at the beginning when Christians were really coming to faith and lots of Jews were becoming Christians and what they were dealing with. Hebrews 10 says this, but remember the former days when you endured a harsh conflict of suffering after you were enlightened. That's talking about when they became believers. At times you were publicly exposed to abuse and afflictions. And at other times you came to share with others who were treated in that way. For in fact, you shared the sufferings of those in prison and you accepted the confiscation of your belongings with joy because you knew that you certainly had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence because it has a great reward. This is a very hard truth because ultimately what he's saying is, yes, you're going to want to hold on to something like back then. You would have wanted to hold on to a coat because that's the necessary reward every night you need. You need warmth. And Jesus is saying, when you get to a place where someone is trying to take this from you and they're trying to harm you or insult you, have a heart posture that says, I'll even give you the one thing that you could never get from me. I'll give that to you, too, because I'm trusting that I have a greater reward. It's hard, but this is kingdom thinking. To put it very simply, our possessions are to be held with a very open hand to the Lord. Everything you have should be held with an open hand before before God. And it seems even more difficult when if we have grown up, maybe a few of us have grown up in very hard situations. And so we've worked really hard to and strived really hard to accumulate some of the things that we have. We've worked really hard to be able to, to, to gather and to get some of these nice possessions, books, electronics, homes, cars, jewelry, what have you. We've worked hard for these things. These things weren't given to us. For many of us, we've worked really hard to have them. So this isn't a matter of, I don't think I deserve it. But ultimately, Jesus is saying all of those things, no matter how hard you worked for it, 
needs to be held with an open hand. That's what it looks like to be uh, a part of this kingdom of God. And again, these are situations where people had a legal right to keep it, a legal right. And what Jesus is saying is, even though you have a legal right to keep it, if you're operating in this posture, you don't avail yourself of that right. Very hard. First Corinthians 6, the members of the church were suing each other. We talked about First Corinthians several, a couple of years ago. We talked about this. And Paul starts to rebuke those Christians sharply. And he rebukes them by saying, the fact that you have lawsuits among yourselves demonstrates that you've already been defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Well, what about justice? What about what's right? He said, why not rather be wronged? Now, that's a very different kingdom ethic, isn't it? There's not another society that would function this way. He says, instead of suing one another, and likely in these lawsuits, finding ways to get even more than what you think you should have because your desire for revenge is there. He says, why, why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Essentially, he says, why not love them in Christ more than your personal rights? That's hard. Why not love that person more than I love my, my personal rights? Why not love who Jesus is? Why not love who God is more than my personal rights. This is this way of Christ. And this means that we have to prayerfully consider these circumstances, these situations in which we find ourselves. Because ultimately what we see throughout the kingdom is these types of sacrifices that we make in our life, this is a fundamental way by which God draws others to himself. I'm gonna talk about it in a minute, but when Jesus says to take up your cross, Taking up your cross doesn't mean finding a way to go be a martyr somewhere. Taking up your cross means giving up some of my own personal rights for the sake and for the cause of Christ. And if giving up my rights in this way causes some discomfort for me or harm for me, I'm willing to do that for the sake of the kingdom because somehow in God's economy, this is a primary way by which he draws others. When he sees, when people see somehow just the way the God's spirit moves, when the ethics of the kingdom are on display, it becomes infectious and it hits people right to the heart. That's why we said a week ago, it's not going to be all the clever arguments and all the clever pithy ways that we talk about Jesus that makes people go, that was so clever. I want to follow him now. It's the way that you live your life, the sacrifices that you make, when I know there doesn't seem to be any real reward on this earth for that, there's got to be something else behind that. There's got to be another reason why you can still sit with joy and do this. It's one thing to be able to, to get frustrated about things happening and then just be angry and have kind of a lemon face and be super mad and, and, and frustrated all the time because of the things that are happening. We all have been there and, and that's easy to feel. But it's another thing to go, yep, I'm dealing with this injustice. I'm being cheated. I don't like this. I would like for things to change, but I'm going to remain in a place of joy in the midst of it because I'm holding those things with an open hand. This other way that Jesus says to give up our rights. There's another one in uh, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Jesus here is saying, we need to also be willing to give up our rights to our personal time. We feel very, very protective of our time, don't we? 
I have had to learn to be way more protective of my time. There is healthy. There's a very healthy reason, and it's good to create boundaries. Don't hear me say this is like an anti-self-care agenda or anything like that. We need to be very careful with our time. We need to be careful about where we spend our time and how much of it is life giving versus life draining. All of that is true. But in this situation, what Jesus is saying is that we need to be in a place where if we are in those circumstances where the, there are those who are causing issue or calling or drawing on us to do a thing or creating some form of injurious or insulting type environment. He's saying, yeah, you may not feel like all of us can say anybody got time for that. And Jesus said to my kingdom, you make time for that. That is the hardest thing. It is very difficult because this isn't something I can say. It's easy to say black and white across the board. There's wisdom that's involved in this. We've got to figure out what that is. Community is going to be necessary in this. Prayer, understanding where God's heart is, is necessary. But you need to really go get to that place where you go, am I holding my time too tightly? And am I using this in some ways to almost shut this person up? Or am I using this in some ways to avoid certain things where God might say, that extra mile you're going to walk with that person, that might be the mile in which I start doing my work. There's a little bit of context here. Roman soldiers back then had legal rights to make a civilian carry all of their luggage up to one Roman mile. That was kind of the law of the land at the time. So if you were a Roman soldier and you were coming back from war on your way or on your way to training and you saw a regular civilian just on the side of the road, you could give your rucksack to them and go start walking. And they had to do it. They couldn't exceed a mile, but they had to do it. That's the context Jesus is saying this in. That doesn't feel very just. People, a regular citizen would feel like this is so mean. This is not fair. I was on my way to do one thing. I don't have time to walk a mile for this random soldier that I don't know. What? And, you know, sometimes soldiers might know the citizen and want to get him back. And so they would see somebody and go, hey, you carry that for me. There were stories I found where there were soldiers who wanted to uh, have relationships with uh, another man's wife. And when the man stuck up for his wife and said, no, she's not. Don't she ain't going. They were like, that's all right. I got you tomorrow. Walking down the street, see the guy carry that a mile. Not just. And Jesus says, again, it gets the backdrop of what people are getting ready to deal with, with all of this persecution. He says, if you're going to show and manifest and live out and image me well, then even in the midst of persecution, if somebody begins to embark or infringe upon your time, you give up your right to it. Some think that this may be what happened when Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry Jesus's cross. A Roman soldier, uh, they think many have said that a Roman soldier may have just commanded and did, based on that one law, command him to carry Jesus's cross. The Jews at the time, they hated these impositions. So when Christ said this, you realize he was separating himself from all of the Jewish leaders and the zealots at the time. Because they were likely saying, this is wrong, we need to stop doing it. And it's not that they were wrong in being frustrated by it. But Jesus separates himself from them and goes, hey, in the midst of this, this persecution you're getting ready to face. When that happens, go beyond what they require of you. Don't just go the mile. Go a second one. What does that even look like for us? What does it look like? Listen, sometimes you've been done wrong and it's easy to be like, I've done my part. And that's it. And sometimes there's wisdom there. Again, I'm not saying every time we need to do that, but we need to be asking ourselves, okay, how much 
has been enough. And, and our tendency is going to be to cut it off too short versus to go beyond. And we need to figure out what does the beyond look like? What does that second mile look like? How do you respond when someone imposes on your time and your energy? Are you gracious? Do you recognize that your time and your energy are the Lord's and he can use them however he sees fit? Do we trust God's sovereignty and the interruptions of our day? You've got a whole day planned. You've got really important things that are going on and then interruption comes. Where does your heart go? Honestly, mine doesn't go in good places all the time. The things that I've faced, the things I know I'm going to have to give up because this interruption happened. The things I, I knew I wanted to get done, but this interruption happened. It's a, it's, a, it's a hard thing, especially even in this role when you have to be available because people can be going through anything at any time. That's just a part of it. And so there are times where you have to create boundaries and there are also times where you have to be available. And, and all of us to varying degrees have had to deal with that, whether it's in relationships, family or what have you. What do we do when there are impositions on our time, the disruptions on our time? And even further, what do we do when those impositions on our time happen from people who are rude or disrespectful? And Jesus says that time, that time, even with the one that's disrespectful, is the Lord's. And we're supposed to use that time to serve those who may even hurt or harm us. We don't get hearty amens for that, do we? <laughs> because that's really, really difficult. And we got to figure out where the balance is, right? Because we're not saying do this now to a point where there's our own personal significant injury that causes any number of issues, whether with our family. We got to figure out the wisdom there. But we just need to make sure that our heart posture is in the right place. We try to be careful not to come up with, now here are all the specific applications. And if these applications are done, you're in sin. We're not doing that. But what we're saying is ensure that your heart posture is in the right place. Because it's the why you do that matters far more than what you do. So why I'm doing this? If there's a time, now listen, there are some situations, I'll say this now, there are some situations where people might be imposing on your time to create yet another injurious, toxic environment. You've got to be very wise in that too. We've said it before. There are other times Jesus clearly believed this because when he talks to his disciples and says, listen, when you go to this place and you're trying to tell them this and they don't want to hear it, kick the dust off your sandals and walk the other way. So there's a balance there, right? We got to figure out what that looks like. But the bigger question is, is do I see my time as mine or do I see my time as the Lord's? If I see it as the Lord's time, then my heart posture will be such that says I'm willing to sacrifice it for the benefit of others. Even the rude and unthankful, I'm willing to sacrifice it for their benefit. Because y'all, I don't know if you know this, but to Jesus, you're pretty rude and unthankful. And to Jesus, you could easily be an imposition on his time. To Jesus, you can really be somebody that might not even be worth it, but thankfully he does not see us that way. Thankfully he says, yes, in every single objective way of describing you, you're pretty rude and unthankful and you just can't quite get right. And yet Jesus says, and I love you. And so I make time for you. And I set aside all the ways that you, that you betray me. 
I set aside all the ways that you rebel against me and I'm going to stop stay right here. I'm going to suffer and stay right here. I'm going to take all this time and go nowhere. I'm never leaving you. I'm never forsaking you. And it's not because you were polite. It's not because you were so thankful. It's not because you were so holy. I'm doing this despite that. And in the same way that I love you, I call you to love others. The final real quick thing in verse 42, he says, he says, um, give to the one who asks of you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Real quickly, this is Jesus also saying, give up your right to your money. Very specifically, give up your right to your money. So we don't sacrifice our rights to uh, we not only sacrifice our rights to retaliation or to our possessions or to our time, but we give up our rights to our money. And this is very difficult to hear because. Money is difficult to acquire and it's even more difficult to keep. There's always a reason to spend our money. There's always things that are vying for our money. There are things that need to get done. There are bills that need to be paid. And, if, and I'm going to tell you, there is one thing that inevitably wants to suck every amount of money out of your life. And they are called children. And I love them. They are amazing. Awesome. But they want your money. And they feel entitled to your money. I'm watching my middle one look at me shaking her head. You want my money. <laughs> so it's hard because we know how hard we work for it. And we know all the things that are vying for our money. And we know all the things that want to take our money. And on top of all of that, Jesus says, hey, when there's people that are rude and disrespectful and really trying to insult you, you need to be willing to part with your money for them too. What? <laughs> Jesus, you're killing me. <laughs> But you love me and you're giving me life. <laughs> but it's a hard truth because because ultimately when we work so hard, this money becomes an extension of our worth sometimes. Like I do, I value myself based on what I make and what I have and what I have invested and all those things. And so try, having to part with this for not a really good reason. And further for a very negative person and I'm having to come out of more money because of it. We naturally feel that since we earned our money, it's not, it's not right for anybody else to have it. I worked for this. We may not say this, but we also function in a way that says, I worked hard for this money, and God, you don't have a right to it. We may not say it, but we do function that way. We do that a lot. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but I'll just touch on it now because we don't talk about it enough. We do that a lot with our money and how we give, even in church. We make other excuses to not give to church. Well, I give with my time. I give by serving. That's all true. That's very necessary. But we are all still called to give our money to the church. And I promise this is not some self-serving thing. This is a function, as we said at our church family meeting, this is a function of our worship. When we're giving, we're saying, Lord, this is your money and not mine. Lord, you're going to see fit to do what you do with your church, with this money, because it's yours, not mine. And so the moment I start making excuses, well, you know, I, I, I give this way. Well, I give over at that nonprofit over there. And that's just pretty much the same thing. That's not the ethos of the kingdom at all. Those are excuses we make so that because that's our way of telling God and telling our community. Yeah, you, people still don't have that right to this. Th this money is not yours. This this money is mine. And I have the right to determine what to do with it, even though God calls me to do something else. 
when we first started, I remember there were people who wanted to be a part of our core team. And one of the things we did with our core team, we had roughly 25 folks, and we brought people together. We were kind of walking through the values of the church and the values of the kingdom and walking through a lot of these same things. And when we got to the portion where we talked about there's no way for our church to function if we don't have faithful rhythms of, of generous giving. There's no way we can function as a church, not only for taking care of staff and taking care of church issues, but being able to be a blessing to the kingdom and care for those in need. We, we can never do that if we didn't function in such a way that says we're going to be generously giving. And I remember somebody, very experienced Christian who had done a lot of work in a lot of the nonprofit world. You normally run into this problem more with people who are not that anything's wrong with nonprofits because I love them. But many times that's where you see that problem occur the most. And this person was just like that. And they were like, well, you know, we just see things differently. We don't know that we really need to be giving to a church. I'm like, well, why are you wanting to be a part of a core team of a church where we're trying to get something off the ground and be able to love people and help build disciples and help love community? Why is it that you want to love God with every single other aspect of your life, but not your money? Because on some level, that is still an idol for you. Because on some level, you don't think God owns that. You think you do. And Jesus is saying that in his kingdom, we give up our right even to that. If we're followers of Christ, we say our money is the Lord's and we are to be extremely generous with it. So really quickly, how, what few ways, kind of in a big picture thing, what few ways can we kind of apply some of this? Well, the first thing is understanding this taking up of our cross thing that we're called to. Taking up our cross means giving up our rights. We said it before, look at Jesus. Never a more honest being ever, just deserved no punishment, but gave up his rights and just entrusted them to God, the Father. In the same way, we give up our rights. We serve others. And at times we experience injustice and we have to daily take up our crosses and we have to follow Jesus in so doing. Our lives should not be functioning the way that the conventional worldly wisdom functions. Consume with our right to retaliation, consume with our right to possessions, consume with our right to our time or to our money. Our primary duty, our primary rights in many ways are to sacrificially love God and to sacrificially love others, which at times means bearing the insult and the pain caused by others. Sometimes that's what it means. In Luke 14, Christ said, whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So the life of the cross is proof that we're disciples. This is the difference. I think sometimes people put themselves again in foolish situations and go, people got mad at me because I was trying to pass out Bible tracts or talk about Jesus at work when I was supposed to be working and they fired me and I'm a martyr for the cause. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about. You were just being a fool at work. You were not really being a disciple, I promise. But this in case here is different when you are living out these ethics of the kingdom and you start to suffer real punishment or or reprisal of some sort doing that and you're giving up your rights in doing that. That is what it means to bear that cross. That's what it means to die to self. Are you carrying your cross by dying to your rights on some level? Can we identify that for ourselves? Am I carrying my cross by dying to my rights? The second is this ability, understanding that this ability to give up our rights, it's not something that just exists within us on our own. This is something that really does happen as a work of God's spirit in us. This is something very supernatural. 
As believers, we still have a nature that wants to fight for our rights, flesh that wants to fight for our rights, flesh that desires to hold grudges and seek revenge. But if we're living a life in God's spirit, obeying God and abiding in him, the fruit of the spirit starts being born out in our lives. Joy, peace, patience, perseverance, goodness. All those in Galatians 5, the fruit of the spirit, those are all things that are supposed to be present in every believer. Those aren't things that we treat like a fruit bowl where I don't like the bananas, but I like the oranges, so I grab that one. No, that fruit word is singular. It just means the entire bowl of fruit should be in you. You need the whole bowl. And if that whole bowl is there, then that there's no question that God's spirit is at work. So that means that, yes, there are going to be times when our flesh wins and we repent whenever we walk in the flesh and we pray for grace to love those who seem unlovable and we give up our right for retaliation. When we're praying, y'all, it's great. We need strong prayer lives. Your prayer life, as you draw near to Jesus, at your time in the word, your time of fellowship, your time of obedience, all of that should be moving your heart into a place where you go, when there's a time where I need to give up my rights, I feel empowered to do so. If your prayer life, your time in the word, your fellowship don't lead you there, there's something wrong. Ultimately, what Jesus is showing us is love is the primary way we minister to those who hurt us. Love is the primary way that we minister to those who hurt us. Not isolation, not retaliation, not icing the person out. This is the reason why Paul said in Romans, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Consider what is good before all people. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Then he says, do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by, uh, uh, by evil. Overcome evil with good. <laughs> Jesus is ultimately saying the only way that we are supposed to minister to people who are harming us is not to retaliate, but to love them. To love them. And finally, this life of the cross. All of this sounds super heavy, and it is. This is difficult. But there's a promise that Jesus brings. He said it earlier in one of the earlier sermons we had in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There is a blessed reward in a life that's lived in this way. Because what he's basically showing, and God already just showed us in this last verse we just read, even though we don't fight for our rights now, instead, and instead choose to sacrifice for others, one day, Everything will be given to us. One day, all of the blessedness that God promised uh, promised will be given to you. So instead of trying to get it right now, love right now and wait for God to give it when it's time. That's hard. That's really the kingdom mentality. Can you imagine how our society would function if we acted that way in our personal endeavors, in our personal relationships, in our personal situations? As Christians, we sacrifice much of what the world pursues and fights for. And one day we believe we'll be uh, uh, rewarded eternally. It will be all worth it. 
in the end. This idea, this reward for the meek will be great. So the question still goes for all of us. Do we bear the marks of kingdom citizens? Are we willing to lovingly bear the burden and pain from others or citizens of this world? Or are we consumed with our personal rights and comfort? And I'll close with this one quote from uh, a really good biblical theologian who has been around for a long time. And he said this, he said, Jesus changes our lives. We no longer consider it our duty to get even. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's fine for the courts, but it's not for our relation to others, even our enemies. Thanks to Jesus, we have let go of our legalistic obsession with fairness. We are glad that Jesus was not fair with us, for if we were to have gotten what was coming to us, it would not have been good. As Jesus' followers, we give ourselves to the highest welfare of others, even our enemies. We put up with the sins and the insults of others for Christ's sake and theirs. Though hurt many times before, we refuse to withdraw into the shell of self. We do not run from hurt. We appear weak, but we are strong, for only the most powerful can live a life like this. But the power is not ours, but Christ's. Everything comes from Christ. Let's pray. Father, you have, you have loved us. And as we have just talked about, you have loved us in ways that go beyond things that we deserve. And there are ways that you have loved us that we could not have, with any real clear conscience, even ask of you. And yet you have done so. But you don't just rescue us. You don't just save us, God. You have called us into the same work. The way that you've loved us, you said, Jesus, you told us a new commandment you gave us that we not just love our neighbor as ourselves anymore, but we love our neighbor the way you have loved us. Lord, give us the wisdom and the perseverance to love the neighbor even when the neighbor behaves like an enemy. Lord, give us the ability to love those that have made it their mission even to insult, to harm. God, I pray that we would not be moved by retaliation. I pray that we would not be moved by enacting revenge. God, give us the wisdom to know when it's time to uh, make actions just to maybe protect us and our family versus just protecting ourselves from insults. Father, I pray that you would give us a deep heart. Give us your posture. Give us your mind. Give us your heart. Give us your love. God, I pray that we would see our time is yours. That we would see our rights is yours. That we would see uh, our money as yours. That we would see revenge as yours. You told us. Vengeance is yours. So God, break us of this false ownership we think we have over our right for revenge. Lord, this is hard. This is something that we have to wrestle with for the rest of our lives. But God, let be with us and show us and comfort us when we mess up and encourage us to do what it is that you've called us to do for your glory, for your kingdom. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts.
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.